I'm acutely aware of the time, but I'm intensely aware of the presence of God. During worship this morning, I don't know if you felt it, but I was pretty aware of my frailty before God. I was aware that no matter what I think, no matter what I do, no matter who I am, no matter what I say in my flesh, that it's all stripped away in the presence of God's glory. What I want to do is I want to invite you, if you can, if you're able to in your seats, to take a knee for a moment. I'll let you off, Rodney. It's all good, brother. I'm also aware of our self-talk and what we often say that defeats us in moments that can be triumphant. Each time we, we make decisions, we make decisions based upon one of two things. Is this right or does this feel good? It's sort of like sometimes the flesh wins out, doesn't it? Sometimes the flesh takes the, the upper hand and it seems to do something in your life and you kind of, you know, today I'm going to stay away. Today I'm going to do my own thing. Today, you know, it's all about what I want to do. It's all about what I need to do. It's all about how I'm feeling. It's all about my weakness or it's all about that I'm feeling strong today and I could climb a mountain. But then there's the still small voice there's the actual glory of God in our life. There's the witness of the Spirit who says to us to take a different path. Now, like I said, I am intensely aware this morning of God's presence and how small I feel in it. I opened my Bible app on my phone and I read these words. I am very dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. I'm aware that there are people who are avoiding the light of Christ because in themselves they feel that they are dark. This is not about skin color. This is about that you feel like you don't measure up. You feel like you don't match up to the glory of his goodness you don't match up to the king of kings and therefore you should not be in his presence 
But the words before this speak deep to my heart right now. The very second verse of Song of Solomon's chapter 1 says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. You might think that's a little bit overtly sexualized, but God wants us to be aware how passionately he pursues us even when we feel dark, even when we fail. God pursues us with the love of a bridegroom for his bride. And we either take the choice of running and hiding from the light that exposes or running toward and intensely letting him kiss us. Today I choose him. Caitlin talked about identity. That we should sing with the passion and the conviction that that is our identity. Well, I confront the self-talk in the room that says that you don't measure up. That says that you're not worth it, that you're dark and you cannot be in his presence. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would minister right now to every person. We take a knee not because we take a knee, Lord, just because we can. We take the knee because in our heart of hearts we are sorry that we allow our self-talk to get in the way. We we allow our concerns and our fears and our worries take hold when we should be looking to you and turning in our anxieties and casting our cares upon you. That you speak deep into our hearts in those moments you have given us the Holy Spirit, the great counselor to remind us of who we are, but yet we still think and we declare over our lives the darkness of the sun we have been exposed. But ultimately, Lord, you are in love with your bride. Father, today help us to take every thought captive, submitting it to your will, submitting it to your word, and Lord, right here in your presence, submitting it to you. That we would be changed from glory to glory in moment to moment after your likeness that we would ever so intently fall in love with you. Jesus, we ask today as we listen to your word that you would kiss us with the kisses of your mouth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats.
I need your help today, guys. <laughs> Is that all right? You give me your help? Yep. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Praise God. Oh, look at that. Look at our team. They're already over it. Thanks, Joe. We're, uh, we're working through a vision series. We're working through who we are. We're working through some metaphors and pictures that we see throughout Scripture that communicates to us just how God sees us as a church and how much more fitting was that demonstration of God's love for you today. These, these pictures or these metaphors, they speak to us like parables that we can relate to, but we've got to put ourselves into the picture. That we're working through a series to help us understand who we are and how we can represent Christ or how we can represent him to a world that is completely opposed to him. We're working through the vision because it is who we are and we understand that Life Source Church's vision is to be as one. We spoke about unity in our first week and we declared that together we're strong. We spoke about the inspiring faith, the imparting of hope and the expression of love. And when we understand that that comes from being one in Christ, then we're able to be that for a world in dire need. Week one, like I said, was unity. And then we looked, we started to begin in our week two to look at our, our value system. The reason we do this is so that we can help you understand who you are and what you belong to. We looked at those four. We haven't necessarily looked at all of them yet, but in week two, we looked at our community icon and, you know, we talked about letting our hair down sometimes and there's no hair. You guys said, you've got to help me, guys. All right. Well, we thought, we actually said it was Angus, but Ian's pretty close too. So. <laughs> but uh, I figured I'd pick on the younger one and not the older one in the, in the room. <laughs> Isn't that funny, hey? <laughs> we looked at the community and we opened up why it's one man, one face, and not a picture of many. And then uh, we had a break with Missions Month, and wasn't Missions Month awesome? Then we came back last week and I spoke about the first two weeks and I brought them back to help us understand that we're on this journey together and we haven't lost focus. But God gave us this beautiful picture of the pride of lions. The community meant family, tribe, a pride that it is community. That was our recap. But this week, we get a chance to look at our beautiful icon, the eagle in flight. Is the picture of grace. Is the picture of us soaring in the goodness of God. So, as you can see up there, pictures of Jesus Church, a vision series, part four, which is really a part three. But we're talking today about a bride's grace. Nothing is graceful in our world, really. And 
Do we see our, put our eyes upon our bride for you guys out there that are married? The day that you turned your eyes and opened them, and I know there's a couple in the room that, that I had the privilege of, marry, of doing their marriage ceremony, and I asked them to keep their eyes closed as the groom until he, his bride entered the corridor or the hall or whatever you, I don't even know what you call it now. And as he turned around and he opened his eyes, you just saw the joy upon his face of his bride that stood there in her glory. It's a gracious picture, isn't it? Of a groom looking at his bride. It's an amazing thing to see. But I want to ask you this question. There's a picture for us to glean on while I speak. I want to ask you this question. Do you know that the Bible, in fact, that Jesus relates to his church as his bride, as a bridegroom to a bride? And you might think that's really soppy, that's really nice, and it's a beautiful picture, but it's an amazing picture when you allow it to impact your heart. Because it allows you to fall in love with his church the way he has fallen in love with his church. Did you know that from the creation of the world through to the fall of Adam, that from Abraham to Moses, from Joshua through to David and beyond. In fact, we could say from the prophets through to Jesus and now even into our time frame god chose to relate to his people as a covenant people his language throughout history is that of a covenant promise the covenant relationship that speaks to most of us today is the covenant of marriage it seems to be the only one that we can somehow get our framework around but it is also the one that has suffered the most attack in our recent times the covenant of marriage, the understanding of what marriage is to a society and the way we view it. No wonder the enemy has had his dig at it. But do we see that God's covenant and the fulfillment of it is the, in the expression of the church being chosen as the bride's son? No, the son's bride, that one there. When we see things through the revelation of covenant language, we see that Jesus was referring often in regards to the church as his bride. And no more can we see this, but in John chapter 14, where we read these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. They sound like strange words, don't they? They, they seem weird. But when you wrap them in covenant, when you wrap them in promise, when you wrap them in the ceremony of marriage, you can't but understand the wisdom of God there's something about a wedding that is exciting who goes to weddings here who's never been who's never been to a wedding that's an easy question isn't it 
Weddings are awesome, yeah? You get dressed up. Some of you girls, you put on your face. And you do all sorts of stuff to make yourself look nice and pretty. You know, and you're just the guests. You're doing all sorts of things. You buy yourself a nice dress. And some of us guys, we try and squeeze into our suits because we put on a little bit around our girth. That's me all the time. But we love to go to a wedding. We love to witness the marriage ceremony. We love to be a part of that. But boy, don't we love the celebration afterwards when there's good food and good company and a good dance. Yeah? I said, help me, guys. You're pretty quiet. Bad income. I'll help myself in a minute. Anyway. There's something about a wedding. Even though this is not a study about weddings, even though this is not a study about marriage in a sense, we've got to understand when God relates to his church as a bride, we've got to capture the image for ourselves. The wedding itself in Hebrews times was a celebration often lasting seven days. We got nothing on what they got, have we? Seven days of feasting, seven days of party, seven days of just enjoying the good things of God. But it was the engagement or the betrothal that lasted so much longer. We are God's bride or Jesus' bride, but we have not yet come to the wedding feast. We're still in a season of betrothal. We're still in a season of being adorned for Jesus. In its simplicity, let us learn some of the lessons that we can find from the betrothal. Number one, the bride was chosen by the father. Did you know this? The bride was chosen by the father. Too bad if you didn't have a look in on that one. Too bad if love didn't spark the moment that you met each other. The bride was chosen not just based upon her appearance or based upon that she could cook or not just based upon her stature in society. The bride was chosen because the father saw something in the bride that would benefit his son and ultimately benefit his entire family. What does that mean to you to know that the Father has chosen his church, therefore he has chosen you who is in it to be a part of his bride for his son? The value that that places upon you, what has that spoken to you right now? To know that you're a member a part of his bride. Secondly, the father determines the price paid. Not the bride's position, not the bride's stature, not the bride's wealth or lack thereof. The father chooses the bride and he pays the bride price based upon his goodness, based upon his wealth, based upon how much he loves his son, he pays this price. 
Therefore, we can say, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. You belong to the bride of Jesus. It's not based upon your stature. It's not based upon what you can bring. It's actually based upon your poverty and the Father's intense richness unto you. It's not based upon whether you qualify. It's based entirely upon His view of you and how much He wants to pay for us. If we try to understand this in ourselves, if we try to understand it and think that I personally am the bride of Christ, it doesn't work. But when we see it in the context of unity, when we see it in the context of the church as the one bride of Christ, we can only understand then what we're talking about. But it has individual effect because it's not based upon your stature, it's based completely upon his thirdly the betrothal period no matter how long it was was a serious commitment i said before we are in a betrothal period did i not that it's a moment where we are adorning ourselves for our bridegroom but you see this could be from one month to 10 years or in our case, thousands of years. The betrothal period, no matter how long it was, was serious. From the acceptance of the bride price, or the Hebrew word moha, from the acceptance of the bride price, the bride belonged to the groom and no expense was spared to prepare her for the day that he would return to marry her. Wow. No expense would be spared. It was nothing about possession as much as it was about identity. The moment she accepted the bride price, she was seen within her community as already taking on the name of her husband. This is why we are so set apart from the world. This is why the world is so jealous of us and will try and strip away everything that we are and, we'll come, and we come under attack from the world because we no longer belong to the world. Our identity is now in Christ and our seated position is in Him in heaven. We should not see ourselves as the world see us and therefore we should not play around with the things of the world. We should be set apart from the world as the bride's real position is. It also means that he holds nothing back from us. We think that when God set us free of our sin, that we came at this place and our debts were paid and now our bank balance is at zero and we have to work our way into positive. It is not true. As the bride of Christ, we are accepted in the beloved. As the bride of Christ, the fullness of heaven is ours. And again, this is not a get-rich-quick scheme. This means that if there is conviction on our hearts as, by, as propelling the bride's grace forward, then we have no expense spared. Nothing. 
because God is returning for a perfect bride. He's coming back for a bride that is full and adorned herself with glory. He's coming back for a bride who hasn't had to put on the poor person's dress, but the fullest that he could pay for, which means we are meant to be full in this place, which means that there shouldn't be something called lack in our understanding when it comes to the kingdom and it comes to the gospel. Look at this understanding in the next verse here of John 14. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. He's going to the Father because he's preparing us a room. He's going to the Father because in his Father's house are many mansions His father is so rich that there's so many rooms in this place. And he's building a room for his church. He's building a place. That room is called Zion. That room is called the New Jerusalem. And it's perfect. But he says, greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I reckon the sexists grabbed this passage, and I reckon it shouldn't say, and greater works than these will he do. I think it should say, and greater works than these will she do, in reference to the bride of Christ. Greater works will his church do collectively, because we do so in his name. But we ask amiss, don't we? We ask in accordance to our value. We ask in accordance to what we want, instead of asking in accordance to what the Father wants. Anyway, that's a message for another time, maybe. Number four, there, were the time, there was the time of preparation for the groom. It was about building a room or a dwelling in his father's home, and often on the father's land a room where the marriage would be consummated a coming together of the church and christ forever like i said before the new jerusalem for us as his church it was the time of preparation of adorning in beauty and displaying a wonder of the family that she is now part of do you realize that within a hebrew wedding the bride would have to cleanse herself in the full immersion dunking in a pool. Your baptism is about being made ready for that time. The the imagery that you find within Scripture around this language of covenant promise and being a bride of Christ is so rich. It's not about a sprinkling. It's about the preparation that I'm all gone. The old of me, that whether I came from my old family, where I came from, from, from destitution and poverty, all of the old stuff, the sin, that which, that, that which made me unqualified for my bridegroom is gone. It's washed into that water. And when I rise, I am adorned for him. I am cleansed in his image and I am ready 
to stand before him. Lastly, the betrothal could only end through divorce and usually only by unfaithfulness. God speaks so much about remaining faithful. He speaks so much about remaining devoted and pure throughout the entirety of Scripture. Paul writes of it too. He tells us to keep our eyes squarely upon Jesus, even more as we see the end approaching, which means not the end, but the consummation of the bride with her bridegroom. We know that that's not an end. But the betrothal itself means that there's a confidence in us that he's not going to reject us. He won't reject us. Because he paid such a high price for you and I. This reveals the period of grace that we are actually in. And church, we must capture the grace of what it is to be his bride. So when we look at grace, we look at this whole sense of at Life Source Church, we believe in a transformed life through the grace of God. This is directly straight out of our vision and values document. At Life Source Church, we believe in a transformed life through the grace of God. You have no chance of transformation but by the grace of God. But by the grace of God. We, st- we were there on our knees this morning and we were, we were picturing how we do not measure up to God. But he extends grace to us. And grace was the death of his son upon a cross so that you and I can be cleansed and made righteous for him. As the bride finds acceptance in the wooing of the bridegroom and identity in the betrothal, we see a wonderful picture, not just of acceptance, but also devotion and worship. That's why we sing songs it's why we gather as one. We're devoted to him and we worship and uplift him in our preparation for that day. Again, directly from our document, a realization of God's grace in our life will lead to a desire to worship and become more intimate with our Savior. The flying eagle is a beautiful picture of the majesty and freedom which flows from the relationship of intimacy and worship. The seemingly effortless way that an eagle soars on the thermals gives us a picture of how God intends our life to be. God's empowering presence enables us to live a victorious life. We do not deny there will be times of hardship and trouble, However, in those times, we rest in the knowledge of who we are in Christ, giving us the ability to soar above our circumstances and see them in their true perspective. This does not come naturally, but requires discipline and the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why would he say such a thing if it were not possible? but by grace. Our commitment to this value is shown in these five dot points, developing an intimate relationship with God through discipleship. 
We're not called just to be saved. We're called to follow. Adhering to sound and relevant teaching from the Word of God. Not just hearing it and letting it tickle our ears, but adhering to it, applying it, putting it into our life and making sure it helps us in our direction of growth. Thirdly, taking responsibility for our own personal journey and disciplining ourselves in all area of life. Taking responsibility. I made that mistake. I'm sorry that I made that mistake. And God's going to grace me to overcome that mistake. Because I'm transformed after his image. I have the mind of Christ. I am the righteousness of Christ. God's gracing me to overcome Fourthly, walking in the power and authority we've been given as new creations through an exchanged life with Jesus Christ. We've talked about baptism before. And lastly, a desire to express prayer and worship as part of our everyday life. Not just Sunday. Not just once a month Sunday. It's part of our everyday life. We're being adorned for our groom. Why wouldn't we want it the same as he would? The picture of the bridegroom, the bride and the groom. Paul gives us wonderful encouragement in his letter to the Ephesians. And while we can read this and we can apply it very personally to our own marriages and our own life as husbands and wives, let us look at this really quickly in light of what we're talking about. This is actually more about the mystery of the grace of God through Jesus toward his bride. It says this, submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. I had to put that one in there because there's some husbands here I reckon that need to understand that firstly Paul writes submitting to one another before he writes this next point which is wives submit to your own husbands. Sometimes we like to use the wife, submit to me. The wife should be empowered if you're being led well by your husband, should be empowered to say, well, hang on a minute. Paul says we should submit one to another first. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. There's the point. Christ is our head. His body and is himself its savior. Without him, we would be lost. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Remember what I said before? It's about submission one to another. 25 says this, Husbands, this is your time now. Love your wives. Wow. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, if you don't love your wives, then they won't ever submit to God's calling and authority on your life. Is this is the example. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might 
sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Heavy words, aren't they? Verse 29. Why did I do that? For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, even though I'm talking about this mystery that is Christ and the church. He says, however, take the practical lesson. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. How wise was Paul understanding that men need respect and wives need love? Yeah. So husbands, you want respect, then you love your wife. That's simple. The onus, the emphasis is on us because when you look at the mystery of the church, the emphasis is on Christ who laid himself down for her, who laid his life down for us. The church is, as a bride, image illustrates the heart of God, our Father, who longs for his love for all people to be expressed in and through Jesus' church. By grace we have been saved for grace, to reveal grace and offer grace to others who need grace. I'll put that up there for you to see it. The church as a bride image illustrates the heart of God, our Father, who longs for his love for all people to be expressed in and through Jesus Christ, church. By grace, We have been saved for grace, to reveal grace and offer grace to others who need grace. Our response, really quickly summing up this. You can take the practicalities of the husband and wife thing. And you can read that for yourself and you can allow God to speak to you in your marriage and where that's at. That's where we leave that. There are three things that we need to look at in our response as Christ's church to our groom. Firstly, we need to respond to love. It's really hard when you are showing love and showing affection and declaring good things over someone, it's really hard if that person doesn't receive it and respond to it. Is that true? It's very true, isn't it? 
How much more then is it when we think of God the Father or if we think of Christ, our bridegroom, who has done so much for us? How much more is it upon him? How hard is it if he's giving and giving and giving and giving and all we're doing is blacking out with arguments that come from the flesh? Our response to love is found in Colossians 3, 12 to 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Everyone say chosen ones. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Put them on. Put on a compassionate heart. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. Put on patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Isn't that amazing? Put on love. It means it's re- respond to it, accept it, let it overflow you, let it wash over you like the groom's kisses I was talking about earlier. If you're struggling with that, put on some praise music or some worship music and just let the love of God overflow you. And you'll grow. Secondly, respond to his will. As Christ submitted to the Father, so too must we. As the bride is loved by her bridegroom, she will love and minister in submission to his will. You're not forced into it. No one can make you do anything. But when you accept and respond to the love of God, your automatic response is to minister from that. Your automatic response is to do His will. As Christ submitted to the Father, we are to submit to Him. This is submission one to another and to Christ. Yet we understand submission is mutual. It's not just wives to your husbands. It's each to each other. The husband surrenders all to her about becoming one in cause, one in purpose, and one in expression. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Thirdly, let us, thirdly and lastly, let us respond in hope. Anyone feeling hopeless this morning? Hopefully after my words, you're not feeling hopeless. Hopefully, when you respond to the love of God, hope, and hopelessness are polar opposites. Hopefully when you allow God to wash over your life, no matter what you're going through, no matter what storm you're walking through, no matter whether you're laying in a bed or walking and working too hard, whatever it is, there's still hope in Christ. When you're attached to his body, we heard our brother before, thank you for your prayers. God heard them. It's so good being back with my family, my church family. You heard the hope that was in him. The, probably at times in his darkest moment, the only thing that was, he was hanging on to was coming back here to say those words. Who knows? But hope 
had its day. Let us respond in hope. As the bride is loved, she will love and minister to broken humanity with impartation of hope. You go into a dark place, a hopeless world, and you carry that which they haven't got, and you offer it to them. And instantly the hopeless become filled with hope. What is that hope? Well, it's hope of a returning king. Jesus is fulfilling his promises. There is no way he would go and prepare a home for us and not return. Jesus has said, I will come back for you. And we're talking about a rapture now to be caught up into his goodness. And then thirdly, hope that all will be well in him. The promise is there'll be no tears. There'll be no suffering. They'll be in his presence and enjoy his presence forever. I think about that seven-day feast of the wedding, and I think, well, hang on a minute. If it was seven days on earth, how long is this feast going to be in heaven? How long is this feast going to be when God unites his bride with his bridegroom? How long is that feast going to be? How long is that table to fit every member of his church at it? How long is it how good are those grapes going to be i had this grape yesterday fair income it was that round it had five grooves in it reuben called it a grapekin because it looked like a pumpkin i had to bite into that thing four times before i could eat it it was a big grape it made me think about the grapes that they carried back from the promised land that's what it made me think about this massive grape it was huge I'm thinking about the grapes that are on that table that God's got spread for his bride. I'm thinking about that hope. How good is it going to be? But how important is it to understand that as his bride, that is available now on earth as it is in heaven. That is available now because greater things will you do than he. Don't get so caught up in God's love for you that it just remains on you. Take God's love into the world that is hopeless and in desperate need of this hope. That's all I'm going to say. God, you are so good. You are so good. I'm going to put that quote up for you to read. I'm not going to say it. Have a read of that. As we pray, Lord, you have touched us with your glory this morning. You have prepared our hearts to receive. And Lord, you spoke your word to us, that you value us, that you paid a mighty high price for us. That it cost you your son, that it cost you your life. But it was a price worth paying. Because of the billions of people that have been caught up into your church over the time. The billions of people whose lives have been dramatically changed. And who stand before you on that great day. Lord, when the marriage is consummated in your presence. When we are brought up into that place. Where we are set on that beautiful place the new jerusalem 
and we can share that with you. There'll be so much to explore in your goodness. It's just like the picture of the Shulamite woman running through the streets. Lord, we won't have to look for you because we will know you. We'll know where you are. God, thank you for your grace that has transformed us. It is the empowering presence of your goodness toward helping us to outlive the call to be a spotless bride. It causes us, Lord God, to turn away from our selfishness and into the fullness of your call. Lord, it says that we should not miss an opportunity to engage in unity with the whole bride of Christ. Lord, I pray today by your grace, set us free that we would do more collectively than your son accomplished in those three years on earth in ministry lord i pray lift up our expectation as we respond to love allow us to love an unlovable world in jesus name we pray Thanks, James.